Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner. I'm a programmer at TIFF now, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Chase Joint, a writer and filmmaker whose new documentary Framing Agnes had its Canadian premiere Sunday night at Hot Talks. Starting with the story of a trans woman who used a UCLA study to get the surgery she needed in 1958, the documentary uses the format of an old-school talk show to include the stories of the other participants in that clinic, reenacted by an all-trans cast. It's a meditation on the performance of gender, then and now, why we do it, and for whom. It's screening again at the Varsity 8 at 5.45pm on Thursday, May 5th, and it's currently available to stream through Friday, May 6th at hotdocs.ca. And you should see it. Chase picked The Watermelon Woman, Cheryl Dunye's 1996 indie breakout about a Philadelphia video store clerk, also named Cheryl Dunye, making a documentary about a black actress she's discovered in Golden Age Hollywood movies, billed only as The Watermelon Woman. As Cheryl tries to research this person's history, she finds her own life mirroring The Watermelon Woman's in certain ways. But that's just one of the levels on which Dunye's movie operates. A quarter century later, its observations on race, representation, privilege, and sexuality turn out to be entirely relevant to the current cultural moment. Let's find out how. This is someone else's movie. You know, The Watermelon Woman is such an extraordinary test case in investing in recording technologies as a way in which to find usable community histories. (laughs) It is so geeky to me when you pay close attention to the choices being made from the easy legibility of the video rental store as a place where people go to find videos to being a wedding photographer or an event photographer capturing a different mode of history making. I mean, my answer could be long, but that's a, that's a starting point. I mean, by all means go longer. Um, I was amazed at the, multiplicity of formats more than anything else. I don't remember that much. I, we Before we started recording, I, I was saying I hadn't seen it in 25 years and just revisited it last night. And I know I saw it on film, uh, but seeing it in HD really brings out the, the differentiation with all these multiple formats that are using, including video for film reenactment, which is such a strange middle space. But yeah. but. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I didn't realize how much joy it would bring me to participate in this exercise with you um, already early on in our conversation. But that's precisely it. I think your identification of the middle space is actually the power of the film. So it's existing in this kind of through line where it's trafficking in narrative film techniques while producing for you a kind of documentary ethic and arriving you at the end with a kind of complete version of a thing that you then have to unpack everything you've seen prior, right? I mean, there's something so striking and provocative. And I think that it really sets a kind of trend for minoritized subjects to say, we aren't always able to go to an archive to find who we are or where we've been. And it actually is on us to create those new pathways so that we can link our so often siloed histories. Yeah. And the films that Dunye is recreating because she's working within an established genre and a period, and and we have to be able to recognize them as viewers, even as we recognize they're not quite right, which is, I assume, the experience of someone waiting to see their own world reflected in the film they're watching 
and not quite finding it. I'm like the structuring absence is a phrase I've been using way too much lately, but it absolutely applies to what she's doing here. Precisely, precisely. And I think that Cheryl Denier's presence in the film can also not be overstated, right? And cannot be left without a kind of critical interrogation because what is the role of the author in the pursuit of these kinds of histories. And so it's definitely something that I think with in the context of Framing Agnes as well is, you know, who is responsible for telling what kinds of stories and not only a personal responsibility, but a political responsibility to think who else emerges on the screen from that place. And so Cheryl as character then has a kind of different shape to Cheryl Dunye, the filmmaker who arrives to speak about the film and animate it in its many ongoing iterations over these many decades, right? And I think that there's something very useful about the fact that Cheryl as character stays stable within the context of the film, even while its meaning and interpretation can keep changing as the world keeps changing. Yeah, well, and the Cheryl character is of course living the mirror of the Watermelon Moments experience, a phase experience. being attracted to a white woman, having falling into a relationship that isn't entirely balanced. And again, the subtlety of the way that is played out, the, 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 that weird little friend's dinner where everybody's incredibly hostile to one another, uh, except for, for Diana, except for Gwyn oh. Turner's character, who is oblivious to, like literally oblivious to people leaning over and whispering about her three inches away from her shoulder um, because she's just enjoying the experience of the moment and, and, I mean, I'm sure I had seen Do the Right Thing is seven years earlier, and there's all sorts of conversations about privilege happening in that film, even though nobody had the word for it yet. But what we're seeing here is exactly the same sort of oblivious power structure playing out that Faye has dealt with in her relationship with the with the white director who who gave her a career, even though it wasn't a great career as we understand it. And I was just like, it feels like a transmission from the future instead of the past. Um, that the whole movie, but the, but the 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 ease with which Dunye, the filmmaker, rather than Cheryl, the character, and maybe that's how I'll refer to them to keep them straight. But um, the ease with which Dunye just sort of slides the film from one mode to another and brings us along, and leaves all these things hanging for us to find thirty years later is remarkable. Um, and she's coming out of no, I mean, not coming out of nowhere. She'd worked in short films and she'd been, she'd been, um, she classifies herself as an art activist in in a recent interview, which I think is a great way to put it because this does feel like it's got a commonality to Born in Flames and some other films that were happening around the same time. Or actually Born in Flames is like 15 years earlier, isn't it? It was 1981. But they have a, a, a camaraderie in the way they just, they don't actually care if they're movies. Right. Like they are movies. They have the shape of, of a feature film. There is a narrative, but the like the 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 transitions are just sharp fades to black. It doesn't actually cut to something. It just leaves us to figure out its own rhythms and come back to it whenever. I mean, I didn't dismiss it in 1996, but it felt like a strange little indie that had no place anywhere. And now, of course, I realize it just we weren't ready for it as film critics, certainly as straight white film critics, I would have been, was I 30 yet? Not quite, but yeah, you know, I'm reared on, I'm coming out of the Miramax wave, the Tarantino films and all the other stuff. And, you know, Neil Jordan's crying game is the closest that we'd had to any kind of, of trans or interracial representation 
in cinema. And that was like, quote unquote, prestige right. movie making. And this is just this scrappy, weird shot on video, shot on film, bunch of friends making a movie that that is about so much. And I think just because it looked kind of grainy, I wasn't fully open to it. And it's just such a strange thing to see now. And it's like, oh, no, this is this is present day cinema. I have so many things to say. (laughs) And so I'll try to meander around, but so many different kinds of sparks, you know, one of which is that, of course, I think it's important and significant to locate Dunye's work alongside the makers of new queer cinema in the 90s who Mm -hmm. are sculpting cinemas of urgency that are actually claiming that we need to represent now through any means necessary, which means we're not going to spend time waiting for Miramax funding. And we're not going to look for a kind of prestige gloss because our lives are at stake. Mm -hmm. And I don't say that um, dramatically. I say it intentionally and urgently that I think that, you know, the watermelon woman comes with great urgency to say, where is black queer representational possibility? And what can that do for our community's ability to imagine a future? And, you know, you bring up Neil Jordan's crying game and I think it's so important to think about the legacy, the long tail of those kinds of representational choices. I mean, I'm a trans person who's making work in the contemporary moment where we are experiencing one of the most extraordinary, almost global backlashes against transgender rights. And the crying game has a part in that history making, right? That we are resisting and trying to undo the damage of those choices. And so I think that we have to be very suspicious of gloss. I think we have to be very suspicious of prestige. And I like that we can continue to to think with texts like The Watermelon Woman and like Born in Flames. I mean, I think what Lizzie Borden's doing in that film is extraordinary because it is also a film that operates entirely on its own terms and is at the intersection of art and activism. And further is a kind of cohort doc that says we cannot be alone in these pursuits, that we always have to be representing in multiples and to reflect the actual communities that are um, at the heart of these issues. Yeah. Um, and Dunya had cited Poison as an influence or as, mm-hmm. as a film that made her think that this sort of film was possible. Uh, and I'm kind of, I was really surprised by that because Poison is is glossy. I mean, it's 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 replicating a certain look that she's not interested in at all. But yeah, as far as putting people on the screen to have their stories take center stage, it sort of does do that. It's it's dropped almost entirely out of the conversation now. And I'm just wondering if that's because the film elements of like maybe it's just disappeared because it's literally unavailable. But I'm suddenly realizing I haven't thought about that film in a very long time. Mm. Yeah. And and when when she brings it up as a as a point of inspiration, it just feels very strange. Maybe because it's so profoundly male too and fantastical, but it's just at odds with her aesthetic. Well, I don't know. I mean, I'm on a press tour for Agnes right now, and people ask, you know, who are your who are the texts that you are thinking with? Who are the artists who have informed your work? And I have my sort of easy to go to hot list of, of artists, Cheryl Denny and the Watermelon Woman, obviously being one of them, people like Marlon Riggs being another. But there are other uh, texts that deeply informed my work that I don't elevate to the status of first thing to say in an interview. And I'll just for the sake of your and my experimentation, I'll bring one into the fold here. Sure. But something like Travis Matthews and James Franco's Interior Leather Bar. 
Right. This for me as a very interesting text to think about formal provocations and to think about the limits of documentary and the role of narrative storytelling and scripting in the kinds of quote nonfiction stories that we tell. And it's very useful, actually. I wasn't imagining to spend much time here in this conversation, but it's useful to think about alongside the watermelon woman too, because it's relying upon our investments and familiarities with narrative features. It's relying upon a trust that has already been built by the industrial mainstream to support its interventions. And they're both simulacra too. Like they're both recreate obsessive recreations in a weird way of something that never really existed, but also exists because I did a, a, a series at Harborfront years ago on, uh, on invented worlds where movies that could not exist without having physically been built, you know, they required sets, they required effects, they required practical uh, reality to be created in order to shoot it. And interior leather bar is cruising, which again, despite, its claims of accuracy is still creating sets and making a fiction and never even mind the emotional and motivational stuff that's going on. The world we see is not the world that they're depicting um, because you're getting a, a, you know, a coked up version of it, obviously, but also through a straight, um, uh, presumably another coked up vision, a visionary in the, in the creation of it through, through Friedkin's perspective, but interior leather bar is 25 years later, almost a campy version of it in a strange way. Like I I think deliberately, but it's hard to tell because again, it's so far removed from the thing that it's depicting, which is a little bit further removed, but also um, aesthetically completely different from the thing that they're depicting. Watermelon woman has sequences that are supposed to represent gone with the wind or something like it through with no money, which I find absolutely amazing that the decision to shoot that in Philadelphia on a soundstage somewhere or in a park with no resources and still somehow we recognize it for what it means to be. Yeah, exactly. And I'm so interested in that opportunity that we can be anywhere and be thinking toward an idea. I'm very uninterested in reenactment for reenactment's sake or a kind of, you know, historical truth that if we had enough money or time or resources, we could find because our production value was larger. I just, I find it very uninteresting and kind of politically vapid. And so instead who are we? Why are we here? What do we need from this kind of return? And what can happen from a collective investment in that space? And I think, and this is, again, just my own sort of creative imagining when I think about the watermelon woman, but I think that that's at the heart of the method, which is to say, we're using these recording technologies as way in which to evoke feelings and connections to other texts and other ideas and other people. And that it's actually on us as viewers to create those connections and they can be lost on some. And I love that. I love that there's an insider audience and an outsider audience at every turn and who you are to the text matters. And so there are winks and nods and inside jokes that I'm sure as a white transmasculine person who's making work in 2022, I'm going to miss. Whereas the festival audience in the late 90s who are closer to the representations on screen or the representational practices might think like, ah, that was for me. That was for me. And there's such extraordinary power and kinship in those moments. Yeah. I was going to say the one question you didn't ask just now is what am I not seeing? Yeah. Which 
seems to be the key to framing Agnes as well, which is very, very specifically constructed to the lead thing, allied things, lead things. I've never known how to pronounce it. I've only written it down. <laughs> but to slide around points, really, and leave us questioning what it is that we aren't getting from the narratives, from the testimonials that we see. Um, and your reenactments are a sort of black box theater within that talk show space where it does look like a talk show would have looked like in the late 50s, early 60s, but it's also recognizable now as something else because you've built the space. And and I see a lot of um, thematic connective tissue between The Watermelon Woman and, and Framing Agnes, but Framing Agnes also uses the advantage of HD to recreate an era in a way that wouldn't have been possible for Dunye, even on film, because we have this whole digital world or you have this whole digital world available to you now. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, another distinct difference between the texts is that, you know, I understand the watermelon woman to be intervening upon a representational landscape where there is an extraordinary lack. And Agnes emerges in the wake of what is characterized by many as the transgender tipping point, a real heightened moment of visibility for trans and gender nonconforming subjects in the media mainstream. And so we're moving already understanding that we have been represented in very particular ways. And so how do we, again, to return to the early connections, invest in representation and thinking strategically about representation far beyond the bounds of the conversations about casting and who should play what, where, whom, and why, and instead think, what does a kind of alienated industrial talk show setup that is always anchored over someone's shoulder tell us about how we're supposed to interpret the subject who is being represented? Or what does the intimate texture of the Super 8 camera that we understand to be private and domestic give us access to in imagining these kinds of histories? And so we are trying to push back uh, against a kind of politics of representation through representation itself, if that makes any sense. It does. It does. And, and of course, the black box nature of the talk show you create is a direct contrast to the sort of garish, loud Katie Couric thing that, that we see, which like the moment of trans visibility to the mainstream, the first real empathetic, sympathetic moment. And we get to see just how hard that was and just how really, I mean, when Laverne Cox stand, she doesn't stand up, but she stands up for simple empathy. And, you know, why do you have to ask these uncomfortable questions? It's just, it's so powerful. And I had missed it completely. It just wasn't on my radar. Um, and to see that and, and to feel the room, like the energy of that crowd, like you really need to have everybody physically present for that. And, and television is an incredible way of capturing that in a, in a, in an evolution of talk show, right? Like the, the idea of genuine sharing really only works when there's an entire room there to receive it. If it's two people in a camera, it's cold and analytical. I mean, again, you make this point, I'm explaining it back to you. Uh, <laughs> I apologize. But it is fascinating to see, again, that's the process of, of time. Like the, the format has evolved and changed in this new way. Um, where it's a kind of performance, which again brings me back to the Watermelon Woman and the way everyone, Dunye slash Cheryl included, is performing a version of themselves. Like the, the scenes in the video store are arch and funny and strange, but they're also all about intimacy and sharing and exposing yourself in the choices you make when you rent a movie, when you bring something. I remember, there's a generation that doesn't know what that feels like. <laughs> And I'm I'm 
disturbed by this because it was an essential emotional tool when I was a kid. Yeah, you know, and there's the connections to Agnes are, are abundant too, because if we think about the legacy of the talk show as a place where at once trans people were seeing representations of transness, perhaps for the first time, but also recognizing that transness was to put oneself in harm's way. We really recognize the violence of the question through appearances on the talk show. But also to connect to your point, it's about audience. Who do we imagine to be in those talk show rooms? Who is the every person to whom Katie Couric is talking? And this is why I think the reverse shot becomes a very important structuring power of Agnes in particular, which is to say, where is the power located in the room? Who is asking the questions? How do we represent that as well? And so if we want to connect it back to some of the choices in the watermelon movement, you know, what is the reverse shot? Like, where do we get the tell? And I think that there's something quite powerful about the disclosure at the end, which says, you know, this is something that was created for the following reasons. It's a real delayed release because it allows you to stay in the fantasy of that kind of aesthetic creation, something that I think Agnes denies you at every turn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, The Watermelon Woman is about a community ultimately that is dedicated to, I think of like the ending of Fahrenheit 451 for some bizarre reason, the, the librarians who've memorized the books that have been destroyed. These are people who carry forward a cultural legacy even if they don't know they're doing it, simply by having those conversations and and remembering things. And it all starts from a shared point, which is that this woman was fascinating to me and I couldn't know, I couldn't understand why until I excavated her entire life and and found the world around her. And yeah, Framing Agnes is about people who deliberately withhold. and, And that's where the power of the talk show comes in, right? You can choose not to talk and push back. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, people are obsessed with truth. People are obsessed with finding the truth in the archive. People are obsessed with documentary as a mode and mechanism of truth finding. And I feel suspicious of all of those efforts. And I think that the watermelon woman gives us an opportunity to think about how we have to create our own histories and how we can challenge the histories that we do know, or at least recognize that they have always been filtered through an extraordinary amount of like institutional violence. And so how can we rely on cinema and performance and collaboration and community as ways in which to do things otherwise? Yeah, there are moments in both films, both Framing Agnes and and No Ordinary Man too, I suppose, uh, and The Watermelon Woman where characters played by people who are those characters are just allowed to exist uh, fully for the camera. And it doesn't, I mean, it's revolutionary, but it doesn't, the films don't stop to be appreciated. It's not important in the moment. It's part of the story that's being told, but it is important in retrospect um, to, to see people simply be and, and be themselves in a way that I, I'm always worried that this is going to sound condescending because it's like, good job for you. But it, but it really is important to do this and not blow past it in the edit, right? I mean, do you, do you have to make yourself aware while you're cutting of the, of the moments you need to keep? I mean, even if they don't forward the immediate moment in the story, that just to have someone exist is, is, is part of the record? Yeah, I really take that comment seriously and a 
internalize it as a compliment, in fact. And okay. I think one of the things that you're speaking to is a kind of investment in presentness and an investment in being present, which I think is so often denied. Uh, and the opportunities that make both of the films possible, both Framing Agnes and Ordinary Man, is an investment in those moments being the, being the guiding force of the storytelling. And so what does it mean that we can have a whole bunch of questions about X, Y, or Z, but if our subjects and participants consolidate around a certain moment or idea, that's the direction we need to go. And so it's actually having a very loose hand on story structure, recognizing that there's an incredible amount of rigorous research and investment that arrives us on the day, and then really letting the participants, letting those who are carrying the burden of being represented on screen, dictate the terms of those encounters. Because it's not just the shooting day, right? Like this is a record. This is forever. Yeah. Yeah, precisely. And I think that that's, yeah. Yeah. Yes. You can edit that stumble. I agree with you. (laughs) No, it's fine. I mean, it's obviously a heavy responsibility and it's something that, that goes forward right into the next project. It's, it's, it's not just you learning how to do this. It's needing to do this the right way every time. Right. Well, and it's not even about needing to do it the right way. I think it's investing in the fact that films are not stable objects. Films are things that continue to shift in meaning over time through interpretation. And one of the ways that I try to do that is through a deep investment in collaboration, which is to say, I'm never going to be the only one arguing for something on screen or off. And one of the things that Agnes really offers is a community focused and community invested attempt at looking at a history and toward a future. And I think the more we can de-emphasize icons and stars and singular cases, the better our movies will be. Yeah. I mean, it definitely feels like the work of a collective uh, when, when, you know, when, when each new actor performer representative arrives in Framing Agnes, when Jen Richards shows up, I just remember thinking, Oh, Jen Richards, I saw her in blind spot. And then I realized like you're drawing, you're necessarily drawing from a very small pool of collaborators potentially. Right. But to have everyone, it really does feel like you've, you've cast everyone not just purposefully, but also well, (laughs) again, like they're, everybody's great in this, like they're, they're all doing exactly the thing they need to be doing. And that's the feeling I get as well from the watermelon moment where not everyone is a professional actor. Clearly there's some, there's some variation um, but they're all fulfilling exactly the right purpose for those characters. And that's a hard line. That's a fine line to walk. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think in the case of Agnes, we are so grateful to be in the presence of such extraordinary trans talent, um, but also that people feel right because they are themselves. People are charged with showing up as who they are and trusting that the film is going to follow those flows. And so I think you feel those more careful resonances because people aren't trying to operate outside the bounds of their comfort and are willing to try and willing to experiment and willing to see what happens from that place. Yeah. Um, I know we haven't had a lot of time to talk, but, uh, and we may have already covered this, but just to get it on the record, is there one thing, this is how the podcast always ends, uh, is there one thing from, or anything from The Watermelon Woman that you have specifically lifted or borrowed? It feels like it's more of an aesthetic idea, uh, but is there something that you you have 
deliberately snuck in as a tribute to Dunye in there somewhere? You know, the the big wink for me is the recognition that when you can't find your history, you have to create it. Yeah, that makes sense. And um, was that always, not always, but was that a driving function of framing of framing Agnes of the of the the, the specific approach that you took to the story? You know, I don't think it was as direct, but I think that as a scholar of queer and trans cinemas and someone who has been for a long time now thinking about these iconic texts, I think you metabolize them and you recognize that their influence might be much more subtle, but that you've really internalized the power of those choices. And then you can find them in some ways, almost in retrospect, when you look back and think, oh my goodness, that's that's where that came from. You know, I've been thinking with that film for so long that here it's arrived. And that's a really important kind of citational practice, in my opinion. And the more able we are to make visible those connections, I think the better we're able to link these histories. My thanks to Chase Joint, whose new documentary Framing Agnes has one more hot dog screening this Thursday, May 5th at 5.45 p.m. at the Varsity 8. It's also available to stream at hotdocs.ca right now, and you can watch it through Friday, May 6th. Thanks also to Daniel Pansino. He knows what he did. You can find Chase on Twitter at Chase Joint, all one word, and you can find The Watermelon Woman on DVD from First Run Features. It's also streaming on Canopy and Ovid, and available to rent or buy on most VOD platforms. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. And I'm once again reminding you that I've made the first year of the podcast available for just $20 at payhip.com slash Semcast. That's the first 52 episodes of Someone Else's Movie, 46 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. Payhip.com slash Semcast. They're good. Our theme song is by the last year. If you like it or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out. Get your booster when you can. I'll see you next time. <laughs>